Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. for listening to the History of England. For those of you who don't know me, I'm David McLean. Once again, I'd like to apologize for being an American. So sorry. That whole Donald Trump thing, I have no idea what that's about. It scares me too, honestly. And today, though, I'm not here to talk about that. I'm here to talk to you about that most legendary of all English figures, King Arthur. I'm going to have to be honest here. The best I can really do today is the Classics Illustrated version. And my apologies to the other David. I had a computer issue and ended up having to write this whole thing twice. But in researching this podcast, I did a quick check on Amazon as to roughly how many different titles there were that were devoted to King Arthur. And I came up with something like 33,000 books and 600 movie titles. I'm going to be clear. I am not familiar with all of these. There is nearly every conceivable version of the Arthur legend available. This includes, but is certainly not limited to, novels, plays, poems, movies, musicals, toys, and a version done on ice at Wembley Arena in the 70s by the keyboard player from Yes. We're not going to talk about that one. There are great versions, terrible versions, versions with border on the sacred and the profane, sometimes at the same time. Writing about King Arthur, and I'm speaking from experience here, is the literary equivalent of playing Hamlet. It's a privilege to do it no matter what the circumstances are. King Arthur is a part of the defining character, not just of Great Britain, but of the entire English language. If you were to ask, say, William Butler Yeats, what was great about being a writer, I'd be willing to bet that the phrase King Arthur would come up pretty quickly. John Steinbeck, the great American writer, would mention him too. If you were even to, say, ask an American of Scottish descent why he would do the History of England podcast no less than three times, he would probably mention the Once and Future King somewhere in the conversation. King Arthur is a connecting thread that runs all the way from the Middle Ages, connecting everyone who speaks English as well as quite a few people who don't. Now, the first question anybody asks at this stage, I'm sure, is the obvious one. Was King Arthur real? This is a legitimate question, especially during a history podcast. Now, there are certain things I'm supposed to say at this point. I'm supposed to say that, no, King Arthur wasn't real. And then I'm supposed to give you just the slightest bit of hope and tell you that if he was real, then this is what he would have been like. I'm supposed to talk about Roman generals and Welsh kings, and there's someone named Riothamus I'm supposed to talk about, but I'm not going to do that. Instead of talking about what could be or what might have been, I'd like to start about 
talking about uh, two actual pieces of actual evidence uh, that King Arthur really existed. And that's about all I've got, slightly more than two. The first piece of evidence I'm going to talk about is something called the Arthno Stone, which, and may this be the first of many words I'm going to mispronounce, is a slate tablet that was recovered in Cornwall in 1998. It's been dated to either the 5th or 6th century, depending on who you ask, and people who study these things have referred to it as a practice tablet, something on which somebody practiced carving, although it does look more like a piece of graffiti to me. Whatever its purpose, it was broken in half and used to block a drain until it was found some 1,300 years later. The tablet contains a few different sets of words, most of which are broken and can't be read. Three words, though, written without the benefit of a straight ledge are legible. They read, Peter Calavivisit Artano. Most people with a better understanding of medieval languages have tra translated this as Arthno, father of a descendant of Call, has had this belt. And now that's an 11-word translation of a three-word text written on a stone which is broken on one side. Also, it's been suggested that I pronounce A-R-T-O-G-N-O-V as Arthno, even though it has a G and a V in it. We're going to let that one slide. What does all of this have to do with the price of eggs exactly? Well, for one thing... It probably means that if you were walking around in the 5th century and you shouted out, Hey, Art! There was a chance that somebody might have turned around. What you have to appreciate here is that for no less than a millennium, no serious historian would have gone this far. Arthur means bear and wasn't really a name. Or so the argument went. Well, there it was. The letters A-R-T etched in stone flying in the face of conventionality. The second piece of evidence comes from the historian Nennius, who gives us a brief mention of Arthur. Nennius is a 9th century historian, which means that he probably knows about as much about Arthur as I do about the year 1711. Still, he definitely seems to imply that he has access to resources that I don't. And he does go into some detail about Arthur's infamous 12 battles, of which the 12th is definitely a highlight. The 12th battle was on Mount Baden, in which there fell in one day 960 men from one charge by Arthur, and no one struck them down except Arthur himself, and in all wars he emerged as the victor. Now, 960 men in one charge doesn't strike me as a particularly realistic number for one man to knock over. But the Battle of Mount Baden is supposedly a real battle. Other historians mention it, although they don't always mention Arthur along with it. Where exactly is Mount Baden? That's up for debate, but the leading candidate is Salisbury Hill. This is a detail that is extremely important if you're a giant Peter Gabriel fan, and probably not to anybody else. Still, it gives us a place, a real one, where Arthur might have been. So if you head up to Salisbury Hill this summer with your heart going boom, 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 you can take a moment to say to yourself, Arthur, he was here. I won't judge. The third piece of evidence of a real King Arthur comes from something called the Annales Cambriae, or the Welsh Annals, which is a fancy name for a glorified timeline that runs roughly a page long. Most likely written in the 10th century, it mentions Arthur twice in the space of three sentences. The unknown writer also mentions the Mount Battle of Mount Baedon. He doesn't go into as much detail as Nennius did. 
but he does give us something that he didn't. Dates. The first is for a year which seems to be 516. The Battle of Mount Baden, in which Arthur carried the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ for three days and three nights on his shoulders, and the Britons were the victors. The second is for the year 537. The Battle of Mount Kemlan, in which Arthur and Madrot fell, and there was a plague in Britain and Ireland. I don't have to go into a lot of detail in these senses because I don't really have a lot of insight to offer. I can tell you that the author appears to have worked from multiple sources, including an astronomer's journal of some kind. I can also tell you that the word Madraw appears to look quite a lot like Mordred, which is significant, unless, of course, it's just a coincidence. The timeline also mentions someone named Merlin, but quizzically Merlin isn't mentioned until half a century after Arthur dies. Still, this is someone who is writing a lot closer to the original source material than I am, and he's saying that, yes, Arthur was real. This is pretty much all I've got in terms of a king, real King Arthur. A broken stone, a few paragraphs in a historical document which seems prone to exaggeration, and two sentences in a timeline. That's it. Although some other writers claim to be working from a historical perspective, their work quickly devolves into myth and legend. If you feel this constitutes definitive proof, proof all, by all means run with it. In opposition to this, I can give you a short list of things that no one disputes were made up by the various writers who added to the legend along the way. These include Guinevere, Galahad, Excalibur, Camelot, the Round Table, the Lady in the Lake, Morgan Le Fay, the Green Knight, the Fisher King, the Sword and the Stone, the Holy Grail, Sir Lancelot the Bold, Sir Galahad the Pure, Sir not appearing in this film. All that stuff we made up. And that's the fun stuff. The important stuff. I'm going to quote a Western here, a modern genre that is closely tied to King Arthur. When the facts mix with the legend, you print the legend. It's the legend that's really important. It's the legend of King Arthur that has defined us, not the man who might have inspired it. It's a legend that seems to have started long before anybody got to writing it down. As ten Arthurian scholars, which poem or story was the first one, you'll probably get a few different answers. He appears to be Welsh, not English, and there's probably someone out there who would like to point out that initially he's not really referred to as a king. But at this stage, I would submit it's not really clear what a king is anyway. Most early stories seem to be copied down from even earlier versions, and the details in more than a few involve fantastic leaps of imagination. In one early adventure, Arthur meets King Lot, the mythical founder of King London, a of London, since Arthur should come quite a bit after the founding of London, this may imply that Arthur himself is an older legend, a last bit of Celtic mysticism that the Romans failed to stamp out, and that makes sense with the Lady in the Lake, who appears to be a pagan figure. But it might just imply that medieval short story writers didn't use a fact checker. Still, some of the basic elements of the story do fall into place rather quickly. Guinevere seems to be one of the first characters to make an appearance. His brother Kay comes up fairly early on as well. As with later versions of the story, Arthur is frequently a supporting player and not the main character. The early King Arthur stories don't have a lot of heft in them, and it wasn't until the 20th century that Geoffrey of Monmouth's The, His 
excuse me, the 12th century, and Geoffrey of Monmouth's The History of the Kings of Britain, that anyone thought to put everything that it, everyone knew about Arthur in one place as some kind of narrative. The History of the Kings of Britain, which, by the way, is not history of any kind, devotes, devotes roughly 50 pages to the story of Arthur. In general, Geoffrey does not have a lot to say about the middle of Arthur's life. That's worth noting. It's mostly an endless series of battles where Arthur can't lose. But he does add a lot of details to the beginning and the ending of Arthur's story that would go echo down through the years. Here we learn that Arthur is the son of a grain and Uther Pendergon, conceived at Tintagel with the aid of Merlin. Arthur has a sister named Anna here that we forget about later on, but it's essentially the same story that a 21st century writer would tell if he was writing an Arthurian romance. Likewise, the ending of the story, where Arthur is killed at the battle in, in battle with Mordred and buried at Avalon and passes the throne onto his cousin Constantine, is also very familiar. But what's missing is the glorious middle. There isn't really any substance to the middle of the story yet. Ironically, it would be the French who would add the first great chapter to the tragedy of Arthurian romance with the quest for the Holy Grail. Explained by no less a personage than Indiana Jones's father as the quest for the divine in all of us, the Holy Grail is the lord of the knickknacks. It holds such a fix over the imagination that when Dan Brown implied in the Da Vinci Code that it might actually be real, the book spent over two years on the bestseller list, and I've read it. I can tell you it wasn't for any other reason. Told in various versions over the years, the Holy Grail marks the introduction of the story's best supporting character, Lancelot. From the very beginning, he has been the best of Arthur's knights, in love with Guinevere, unable to ignore or hide his feelings, even as it brings an entire kingdom down. By the way, not every version of King Arthur has the court at Camelot at its center. Gawain and the Green Knight barely gives Arthur a mention, but that doesn't make it any less important. It's an alliterative poem. And I think if you were to compile a list of famous alliterative poems, you'd probably find this and nothing else. And it was largely forgotten until it was championed by Latter-day Scholars. In particular, a young English professor by the name of J.R.R. Tolkien, who published a translation. By the way, if you read Gawain in the Green Knight, you'll find the phrase Middle Earth about three quarters of the way through. This is probably not a coincidence. And by the way, as long as we've gotten to Lancelot, this seems like a good point to good time to point out how many highly controversial elements of the story there are. Merlin, for example, would have been seen as a heretical figure in a time when people would have taken that thing very, very seriously. Lancelot's relationship with Guinevere, cuckolding a king, was also dangerous territory. Just ask Henry VI. The round table is a symbol of democracy in a time that there wasn't one. The incestuous relationship between Arthur and Morgan le Fay remains controversial to this day. The embracing of these elements to create an interesting story is part of what makes telling the legend of King Arthur so much fun. Even so, if people had stopped writing at this point, King Arthur would essentially be an interesting footnote, and not much more. It would take the Renaissance and the publication of Le Morte d'Arthur to crack that legend wide open.
Now, if you were to go and read everything that I've mentioned, it would probably total less than a thousand pages. It's a big read, but considering that it was written over several centuries, perhaps understandable that there would be so much information. In the year 1485, Thomas Mallory would double that amount, almost, and would set the standard of all works of Arthurian literature and arguably all English novels in the years to come. Here we see, for the first time, the Arthur story as we know it in all its epic glory from beginning to end. Merlin, Lancelot, the Grail, Mordred, the death of Arthur, they're all here all at once for the first time in great detail. It's an important work of literature, and it, I have to confess, it's one that I find a little tedious. In the same way that William Shakespeare's work reads like screenplays, even though no one had invented the movie yet, La Morte d'Arthur tends to read like someone's describing a video game. There's an endless series of evil knights, all of whom are confronted by one or another of the men of the round table, and subsequently die in a very convenient fashion. That being said, just like any video game, there are some excellent cutscenes, like this one from the end of the novel. Yet some men say in many parts of England that King Arthur is not dead, but had by the will of our Lord Jesu into another place, and some men say he shall come again, and he shall win the Holy Cross. The idea of Arthur as a Christ-like figure who will come back in Britain's darkest hour is one that takes over Arthurian literature. And it's Lamorte to Arthur that is the driving force behind a lot of what comes afterward. And when I say a lot, in this case, I mean a lot of almost everything. Although critics tend to disagree on whether or not Thomas Mallory's book is the first novel, they, arguing about this is a little like arguing whether or not Julius Caesar is the first emperor. Our regular host would probably disagree with me about what makes England and Englishness an important part of the history of the world. For me, the most important art form is the history of the, is the novel. It's the reason I'm here, why I have the courage to talk to you for this long. And although novels have been written in basically every language at this point, I think we can all admit that novels written in English are probably the cornerstone of the art form. The age of the novel had begun, and its first main character was King Arthur. Now, I'm going to skip ahead several centuries, which is the kind of thing you can do when you're talking about King Arthur. The age of chivalry was romanticized and idealized throughout the 19th century, in particular in Alfred Lord Tennyson's The Idols of the King. Comprised of a cycle of 12 poems written over the span of two decades, it depicts the days of Arthur as a period of lost greatness. The idols were quite popular in their day and inspired a number of people, in particular a group known as the Pre-Raphaelites. For those of you who skipped art history class, the Pre-Raphaelites were a group of 19th century artists who were inspired by Arthurian legend to create a number of works that, much like Arthur himself, seemed to be a throwback to an era that never really was but should have been. I know what you're thinking. Like paintings on a podcast. Brilliant, Dave. Well, the works of John William Waterhouse are the ones I tend to remember the best. In particular, La Belle Dame Sans Merci is one that's destined to be on refrigerator magnets everywhere for a long time to come. Google it and you'll come up with an excellent wallpaper for your computer pretty quickly. Naturally, when anyone acts this pretentious, it's usually a good time to start making fun of them, and in 1889, Mark Twain would add the first American addition to the legend with a Connecticut Yankee at King Arthur's court. 
It's a satire on basically everything I've been talking about for the few minutes. And Twain would use Arthur as a comedic vehicle for the first time and would also be one of the first writers to use time travel as a plot device. It's a lovely novel, but it and everything else I've mentioned so far are dwarfed by the book that came after them. T.H. White's The Once and Future King. Published in four parts during the middle of the 20th century, The Once and Future King is the absolute best version of King Arthur ever written. I need to take a second to acknowledge what a bold statement that is. We're 1,500 years into this saga, and a man who never really wrote a great novel before or afterwards wipes the floor with absolutely everyone who's ever tried to do this, including John Steinbeck. And he did it, ironically enough, by leaving out almost all of the violence and instead focusing on the characters and their story. It's at different points funny, dark, romantic, sad, and enlightening. And The Once and Future King also manages to do something incredible. In a story that's been told so many times, it actually manages to come up with a surprise ending. I first read it as a kid, and my favorite character was naturally Merlin, who is portrayed as a bumbling, occasionally forgetful, but kind wizard who is going backward through time so that he looks younger each year, because he is. I'm sure I'm not the only one who was inspired by Merlin, as J.K. Rowling's Albus Dumbledore is practically lifted from White's portrait of the legendary wizard. One of the things I like about doing this podcast is I get to read great quotes from famous writers, so I think I'll throw in one now. A quote from T.H. White that I think might appeal to podcast listeners. The best thing for being sad, replied Merlin, beginning to puff and blow, is to learn something. That's the only thing that never fails. You may grow old and trembling in your anomities. You may lie awake at night listening to the disorder of your veins. You may miss your only love. You may see the world about you devastated by evil lunatics. Or know your honor trampled in the sewers of, sewers of baser minds. There is only one thing for it, then, to learn. Learn why the world wags and what wags it. That is the only thing which the mind can never exhaust, never alienate, never be tortured by, never fear or distrust, and never dream of regretting. Learning is the only thing for you. T.H. White's story would come to shape a whole generation of fantasy writers. And in general, the time after World War II is a time when almost everybody seems to try their hand at telling the tale of the once and future king, putting almost every spin on the genre. The Mists of Avalon by Marion Zimmer Bradley is notable for putting a feminist spin on this genre. It's epically sad, and it inspired a whole wave of neo-paganism here in the United States. There are also versions that focus on Mordred and Merlin. One 20th century writer even wrote a modern version set among petty criminals in New England. But I, I, I digress. I've said too much. It's on Amazon.com. You were going to pick it up. I can tell. The post-war years would see Arthur on Broadway and in the West End, but of course the 20th century is the age of movies. And in Hollywood, they figured why not use an idea once when you could instead use it so many more times and make much, much more money. And they have put out more versions of Arthur than even I have gotten around to seeing. Almost every major version of the story I have mentioned so far has found its way under the silver screen. La Morte de Arthur and the Once and Future King in particular have served as the inspiration for several films. Uh, there are 
versions that are violent, funny. There are several cartoon versions. Some are good. Some are terrible. My wife will attest I'm a sucker for absolutely all of them. A one of them, however, one movie we need to mention because it became the touchstone of an entire generation. It's a film with some of the sharpest and most quotable dialogue ever written, and I genuinely believe that its creators deserve to be mentioned in the same breath as Thomas Mallory and Alfred Lord Tennyson and T.H. White. Now, which movie is it I speak of, you might ask? Uh, there are those of you who might be queuing up the first few bars of Camarina Burana in your heads, the music that was used quite effectively by John Borman in Excalibur. I can admire and respect that. There might be a few of you who are even humming along to the beginning of Camelot right now. I can understand that too. There might even be a few Disney fans out there who are hoping against hope that I'm going to talk about The, once in, uh, the, the Sword in the Stone, the delightful and underrated Disney movie from the 1960s. And I have just one thing I have to say to all of these suggestions. Icky, 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 patang, zumbang. Monty Python and the Holy Grail is the best movie about King Arthur ever, ever made. No, I'm going to do that one better. It's the best version of King Arthur in any format other than print. Made on a shoestring budget, supposedly with the money they borrowed from Pink Floyd, it blows the doors off every other version. It's been referenced more than once, I believe, by our regular scheduled podcaster, and for good reason. In preparation for writing this, I actually put on Excalibur, which I loved when I was young. My wife stopped paying attention about halfway through. After the movie, she asked me if Lancelot ever came back and made amends. And I said yes, that he did. She asked me when that happened, and I told her that it was when she was watching cute cat videos. The next night, I put on the Holy Grail. Like most people who've reached a certain age in life, she knew all the highlights and all the lines. Too often, humor takes a backseat to drama when people judge the relative merits of one artistic work to the another. This is really one time that it shouldn't. That's it for this episode of The History of England. Once again, I'm David McLean. I am the author of three novels, The Life of a Thief, Dragon Bait, and the upcoming The Time Traveler's Resort Museum. All three of them have Arthurian references and imagery. You can find out a little more, more about them at davidmclean.weebly.com. Uh, that's D-A-V-I-D-M-C-L-A-I-N dot W-E-E-B-L-Y dot com. To the other, David, thanks again for letting me host the podcast. I love being Ringo to your John, Paul, and George. Excuse me, I forgot what podcast I'm doing here. I love being John Paul Jones to your bottom page and plant. Forgive me. Questions, comments, complaints? Feel free to contact me at mclean.dave at gmail.com. That's M-C-L-A-I-N dot D-A-V at gmail.com. Thanks for putting up for my, with my stammer, and have a great day.